Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Book Lounge. Today, we are talking about The Lean Startup by Eric Ries. Your hosts, as always, are myself, Corinne Ritchie. And me, Tom Butler-Bowden. And you know by now what we do with Book Insights every week is we take a great nonfiction book from past or present and we discuss it and uh, dissect it. And uh, as Book Insights curator, I'll give my take on the book and why I think it's still relevant and important and uh, worth reading. Yeah, and I'll also chime in about the book and update you on the latest news about the title and the author. Now, for the most in-depth knowledge about this book, we recommend two things. One, this podcast is brought to you by Memode, so be sure to check out the savable, shareable 10-bullet-point memo about this book. That'll be a great way to learn. Also, check out the Book Insights episode on this book. That one's going to be a more detailed like summary, analysis, overview, but here in the Book Lounge episodes, it's more of just an informal chat about this book of the week. Yeah, so um, our book of the week is The Lean Startup, and it's considered a bit of a, a Bible in terms of Silicon Valley startup world. Um, it's basically, you know, how to get a new tech company or any company actually off the ground and scale it as quickly as possible. Um, and, uh, you know, the, there's, there's quite a lot of new ideas in this book when it came out and now are sort of, you know, really part of the terrain. Um, but hopefully we, we can dig into the, some of these ideas a bit uh, with our guest. That's right. So to, to, to discuss Lean Startup with us, we're bringing on our guest who is an influencer, entrepreneur, the founder of Master Talk. He coaches business executives on effective corporate communications, and he has lots of experience coaching many startups. So thank you so much for joining us, Brendan Kumrasami. Hey, it's great to be here, you too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so Brendan, um, just tell us a bit more about your background and, and, and expertise in this in the subject area. And and then perhaps how you sort of came to the book Lean Startup as well. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to. So when I was in university, I went to business school and I did these things called case competitions. Think of it like professional sports, but for nerds. So other guys my age were playing a basketball or baseball. I wasn't one of those guys. I did presentations competitively. And that's how I learned how to speak. But the goal is never to become an entrepreneur. It was to work at McKinsey and be a consultant. So, so I did a lot of these case competitions. And also earlier in my career, I was a venture capitalist. So I worked with a lot of technology CEOs, mostly on the younger side. We ran a student-run VC. We'd invest different checks within startups. So, so Lean Startup was definitely one of the required readings for, for many of the, the portfolio companies. But the other piece as well is I realized that a lot of tech CEOs were really good at building product really bad at communicating product. And that's what led to my YouTube channel, eventually the business as well. Interesting. Mm -hmm. That's great. I can totally see how that would be a challenge because they are two completely different skill sets. The ability to like engineer something, have an idea, but then to communicate that, that's a whole mm -hmm. different thing. So I'm sure people really value your services. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, so let's drill down into the book uh, a bit. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I think there's a fair amount of romanticization about the entrepreneur, right, in our capitalist society. Um, someone with this great vision who, um, you know, dreams something up, sort of build it, they will come kind of thing. Um, and, but I think this, what this book tried to do was sort of bring things down to earth a bit more. Um, 
the, the reality, of course, you know, it's all very much confirmation bias. We only ever really see, you know, the, the enterprises that succeed all the other ones quietly die and wither away and you never hear sort of hear much about them. Um, so Brendan, I mean, I was just, you know, wondering uh, if, if you read this book as part of your, you know, what you were talking about before your activities, um, you know, did it change anything for you? What, what's, what's the main thing that sort of stood out for you? Absolutely, Tom and Corinne. Like, well, it was a couple of things. You know, the first one, to, to your point, Tom, when we think about the enterprises, the businesses that are successful, you know, those are the ones that Crunchbase and all of these great news companies are really going to showcase. But they don't showcase the failures because there's no story around that. No one's going to read that. And, and the truth is, to really draw this into context, well over 95% of tech companies do fail. Like the, the failure rate on startups is incredibly high. But to your point, what the media showcases is really the 5%, the 3%, the 2% that really in the numbers, probably even lesser than that, that actually are successful. And what Eric argues in the Lean Startup is that many of those companies really did follow a lot of the principles that he teaches in the book. And one of them that, that probably stuck out to me when really understanding Eric's work is really around the idea of iteration right? Doing things that don't scale and being problem focused rather than solution focused. And this is true with a lot of engineers is whenever they want to build something, they really get focused too much on the shiny objects versus is this actually something that people want and making sure that from day one, the customer's in the center of the world and not, not the, the, the gizmos and the features and what they're actually want to build. Mm. Well, um, I mean, yeah, that all makes perfect sense. I guess when I was reading this book, I, I was thinking, um, yeah, Eric makes a lot of sense in terms of iteration and minimum viable product, which we can come on to. But on the other hand, like you look at someone like Elon Musk, um, he's he is he is the sort of classic entrepreneur. Like he want he wanted like you know to to fly to Mars. We should have electric cars, etc. But for someone like him, I'm not sure, did he do much of this um, feedback in the beginning, iteration, et cetera? Or was it really just driven by, you know, a great vision that he had and everything was sort of pulled along by that? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Tom. So in e even in Elon's case, I would say there's only a very small number of founders who are successful who didn't do lean. Obviously, not all the principles stick, but let's say we take Elon as an example. He definitely implemented that principle. And I can give you a concrete example here. SpaceX, you know, the first two or three launches on SpaceX actually failed. Like he actually messed up a lot of times until he got it right. He was actually on his last launch. And if his last launch didn't work, he, the company actually would have went bankrupt. That's how close Elon was to, to, be, to, to not doing a great job. Another thing that Elon talks a lot about, and Eric simplifies it a lot in the book, which is a good thing so that people can understand it, is this idea of first principles thinking. 
instead of asking ourselves, what does society believe? We need to ask ourselves what is actually true. And the only way to figure out what is actually true in Elon's case is to try a bunch of different things, get a lot of feedback, iterate a ton. Tesla is also a great example of this. A lot of people don't know this. He didn't actually have the idea for Tesla. He actually bought it from somebody else and then iterated the product and focused on creating that high premium solution that a lot of celebrities and high net worth individuals would buy first and then went to mass market later. Mm. Yeah, so there, that's true. I forgot about that, that he did buy this initial fledgling uh, company. So there was already a minimum viable product that had sort of been tested with a small market. Um, but for people who don't know, I mean, how, how would you describe uh, the, the MVP? How does that work? Yeah, absolutely. So, so the MVP in a nutshell is what is the, the product that is good enough to get us some feedback? Whereas I feel the struggle with a lot of tech founders, or really just in general, anyone who's trying to create an idea, whether it's a peanut butter company or a, a rocket ship company, is they wait too long to ship. And ship means actually get feedback from users. I mean, let me give a simple example here. Think about my YouTube channel. The first video that came out was me in my mother's basement with the phone. And I was just creating content. I had no idea what I was doing. And the product evolved over time. But if we don't take that first step to actually pressure test our ideas with the real world, we'll never get that feedback that we're looking for. And this is what Eric argues as well, whether it's in his books or a lot of his teachings, is the education system as a whole doesn't set us up for the real world, because when we're in the education system, there's a clear set of parameters and defined ways of doing something. But when we get into the real world, we real, learn really quickly, that's not how business works. How business works is you got to throw a bunch of stuff on the wall and to see what sticks. But if you're not willing to throw those 17 things on the wall, if you're not willing to do a minimal viable product, which is not being afraid to launch something and get that feedback, that's the quickest way to actually get to a point where we hit what, what Eric and many people call product market fit, where the product that is being delivered actually fits the market who actually wants that thing. Yeah. So it sounds like the lesson for entrepreneurs who might be listening would be rather than try to perfect something and end up bankrupting yourself before anyone has ever even seen what you're developing, it's start with something minimum, do as minimum as you can, just enough to get uh, the, the, the knowledge that you seek. So rather than trying to make the perfect product immediately and just get it out, the goal is learn what you need to learn. So get out that, that whatever will give you that baseline. I think I've seen like this little cartoon where it's like, I want to, you know, sell cars, but I'm going to start with the minimum viable product, which is just a skateboard. I just want to know what's going to happen when people get on wheels. How do they feel? You know, those types of things. So start with the product that teaches you something and then iterate as you get feedback until you eventually get to what your ultimate goal is and allow that ultimate goal to change. Cause like you said, that's part of the iteration process is just because you have that vision in the beginning doesn't mean that that's what it's going to stay at the whole time as feedback comes in, it, it, it may change. And that's kind of a big core uh, value of the lean startup is be ready to shift gears, be ready to change. Um, you know, so that, that type of thing. Um, so then one of the other themes that Eric Reese touches on uh, is the idea of acceleration. So um, adapt to accelerate even when you're successful. So um, 
solve problems, ask why as many times as you can, how do you sort of uh, ramp it up? So we talked a little bit about minimum viable product, about just get started. And then once you start to see some success, get that acceleration going. So uh, Brendan, what does this look like in your world in terms of the acceleration part of the lean startup? Yeah, absolutely, Corinne. Great question. So when we think about acceleration, it means a couple of different things. So the first one is when we hit product market fit, which is a lot of people really want what we're doing because we've iterated the product so many times that the results start coming in. So this is where we, we hit what we need. We might need to raise capital. We might need to hire a few more engineers or a lot more engineers in that case to really take the product and bring it to the mass market. But the other piece to that, to acceleration, is never forgetting that iteration cycle as we move up and as the company becomes more and more successful. Let me give a specific example to demonstrate this for the, for the, for the people listening. Facebook, right, what is now called Meta. So when Mark Zuckerberg built the, the company, he started with college campuses. That's how he built his initial network effect, which were the first users on the platform. And then he was able to scale into different segments and get to the place he is. But when the company went public in around 2012, 2013, I remember the exact year, he actually had to make a massive pivot, even when the company was a multi-billion dollar company. And the pivot was to mobile because a lot of the phones started coming up. There were a lot more people started buying phones. And Mark realized that you couldn't just be desktop first on Facebook or else you're going to lose. So he literally went to his entire executive team. He said, guys, I know we got billions of users, but this is not going to work. We need to be mobile first. And I'm not going to look at any product that is developed by any engineer in this company unless it's designed mobile first. That was a very controversial move back then. Obviously, we know today it was the right move. But in 2012, it wasn't so obvious. In 2010, it wasn't so obvious because the iPhone had just started. Everyone thought an $800 phone was like the stupidest thing ever. Mm-hmm. And, and he needed to make that decision and go back to the principles that made him successful initially. So I think the point to acceleration is two ways. One is once you know something is working, to really raise the capital and, and bring that product to the mass market before anyone else does. But the other piece is knowing when to even pivot at scale so that you're actually continuously solving the problem to make sure you don't become obsolete in this space. Mm. That's such a great point that you're never too successful to pivot. <laughs> yeah, the other great example I was thinking of when you were talking then about Facebook is, uh, is Microsoft and Bill Gates suddenly seeing the light about the internet. I think it was sometime in the 90s um or very much this sort of uh desktop company um but then suddenly the idea that they could shift all of their services online i think a lot of people in the company thought he was a bit crazy but yeah that was a massive pivot for the company um but i i believe that brenny you're also quite interested in like the history of airbnb so i was just curious um you know maybe what happened with them in, in the early days did they have to pivot how did they find their product market fit yeah absolutely top i mean airbnb is probably the the story of the valley of how a company goes from understanding lean principles at, at the extreme the best levels and being the success story that they are today so so a couple of thoughts there one is it really changes the stigma that we talked about earlier in the show around 
what does it mean to be a successful entrepreneur? And a lot of us think of fancy offices. We're kind of just sitting there. We've raised like $10 million. We're all singing Kumbaya on Thursday happy hours. And the product just happens. We have a lot of sales. And we're in like presses and a media and run Force magazine. And, and he's this guy. We got this guy named Brian Chesky, who's the CEO of the company with his co-founders, Nathan Blokarczyk, who's the CTO of the company. And, you know, Joe Gebbia, who's the lead design guy. You know, they, when they started Airbnb, they were literally sitting on a mattress. They couldn't really afford their next paycheck, their next rent, because they were all designers, weren't making a lot of money. And they had the idea to rent out the extra bed in their, their house. And it was one of the most memorable experiences of their life. First of all, they made good money. But more than that, they made a ton of friendships. And that was the idea that initially sparked Airbnb. But the challenge was a lot of the venture capitalists, a lot of the investors they initially pitched to told them they were crazy, like because they were scared that people were going to kill each other in these Airbnbs. No one's going to buy this service. So what Paul Graham told them, Paul Graham is the, the founder of Y Combinator, one of the fastest accelerators in the world and the most successful one that's also based in the Bay Area. What Paul Graham told those guys is he said something that always stayed memorable to them. And what that idea was, was do things that don't scale. So when you start a business, you should always be willing to have those one-on-one -on -one interactions to make sure that 100 people love, love, love what you do versus 1,000 that sort of know about you. So when Paul asked them, hey, where are your customers? And they all said New York City. Paul replied with, what are you still doing in New York? What are you still doing in, in SF? Go to New York City and go see your customers. So when they, go, when they flew out to the customers, they realized when talking to them one-on-one -on -one, that the reason that a lot of them weren't getting their Airbnbs booked was because they had shitty photos. So instead of hiring this professional photographer that you would think, right, spend $1,000, they became the photographers. They knocked back at the people's house. They said, hey, we're your professional photographers. They started taking pictures. But they, the point of that entire story, Corinne and Tom, is if Brian and Nathan and Joe hadn't had those one-on-one -on -one conversations, sat down, met those hosts, they wouldn't have realized that was even a problem to begin with. So that's just an example of how the Airbnb team was very customer obsessed and were able to use a lot of those principles to get to scale and to get to the success that they have today. Totally. And that's such a great point that at the beginning, it's okay to do things that don't scale because, you know, if they were thinking like, well, I'm not going to be able to take a picture of every Airbnb. So I guess I just won't like, who knows? how that could have negatively impacted the company. But in the beginning, it's okay to, like you said, be consumer focused and just obsess over all the details and you know do everything you can, even if you know long-term you can't, but just to get that minimum viable product really, really going and accelerating. Mm. And um, still on product market fit, I mean, Brendan, <clears throat> talk about customer obsession. That's one thing, um, not scaling, getting the small things right. But what else can a, can a company do that's struggling to get product market fit? They believe they've got something, but they're not getting you know, the users or customers. I mean, potentially unlimited amount of things they can do, but you know, what are some sort of concrete things? 
Absolutely, Tom. I would say there's a couple of things. The first one is the best founders are problem focused, not solution focused in the sense that they don't marry themselves to the solution. I'll give you an example with me. I always thought one-on-one coaching was the best way to serve people in communication. And I ended up being wrong because if you think about it, it doesn't really make that much sense because if you want to communicate, you want to do it with a group. So there's that social pressure and you're actually presenting to a group, which is what you do in the real world. Uh, right. But I didn't know that at the beginning. That's just an easy example that people can understand. Whereas when we're problem focused and we're married to the problem, it doesn't matter what the solution is. So we'll try a bunch of different things. We'll make a bunch of mistakes to solve communication, to solve you know, another problem like Stripe did with payments or to solve housing for the world with Airbnb and, and creating spaces outside of hotel rooms. So the first advice I would share is be problem focused. Think about the problem that you're solving, not the solution you're creating. Because if you focus, and a lot of scientists do this, if you focus too much on the gizmos, but those gizmos aren't actually solving a real problem in society, you're not going to get paid to solve that problem. You don't have a business. You have a hobby. And those are two different things because there's no exchange in value. The other piece is not being afraid to shift the direction of the company if you're not sure what the problem is. So if you don't have that problem, you need to be willing to rethink what you're doing in the company and pivot towards the problem or else you're building a building with no foundation. Eventually, that building will fall apart. I'll give you a good example of a company that went bankrupt a few weeks ago called Fast. Right, Fast was a super fast-growing startup. They'd raised $100 million in capital, but they never had product market fit. And they were burning $10 million a month, guys, $10 million a month. And they went to zero because after raising hundreds of millions of dollars, they had only made $600,000 of revenue in the business. Made absolutely no sense. I don't know, it was crazy enough to fund those guys. But the point is, is they didn't have that solution. So that would be piece number two, is don't be afraid to list out problems that you see in society. The third recommendation that I have is ask a ton of questions. Remember, you're better off getting 10 people who absolutely adore you versus a thousand people who sort of know you. So think about me, right? Let's say this podcast. I know you two have an interest in my message. So it makes a lot more sense for me to ask feedback from you two versus somebody who doesn't care about communication, somebody who doesn't care about books, right? It doesn't make any sense. Don't try and sell cupcakes to someone who eats salads every day. It doesn't make any sense. Focus on the people who already love you and figure out ways to make them love you even more. Have those hard conversations with them. And this is why the best founders actually start their companies by accident. Like if we think about the Collison brothers, who started Stripe, like the biggest, one of the biggest companies in the Valley right now that's currently private. The reason they, they were so successful at Stripe was Patrick and John, when they're both brothers, when they started Stripe, they just realized that, wait a second, payments suck as in B2B, they suck. So when their product started, everyone in their cohort in Y Combinator literally offered to pay right away. They're like, yeah, I need this. So you know there's a there's a product market fit instantaneously. So look for those those um, look for those opportunities based on the unique experiences that you have as a human being. Mm. And um, I mean, it strikes me that being problem focused and iterative, um, not having grand ideas about what you want to do with your company which might not have any bearing with the reality. It's quite a sort of 
ego diminishing process um, that really the the best founders um, sort of contrary to popular perception um, sort of put them themselves and their big ideas to one side and only after that they start to become successful um, you know is that your experience of founders or or am I wrong here you're absolutely right, Tom. And that's why most people aren't cut out to be entrepreneurs, right? That's how, that's how the numbers work. Because the biggest quality we need as entrepreneurs to be successful ones is the willingness to change their thought process, the willingness to change their mind, the willingness to change their beliefs. And most of us are not capable of that. It's a very difficult thing to do. Some of us are. But most of us like to stick to what we believe is true and we'll do it until the day that we die. So most of us are like that. This is why entrepreneurship is a very difficult game because you constantly need to keep iterating. I mean, think about it. If I told you 10 years ago that most of the intention in our society was going to be on Facebook, Twitter, you know, Snapchat, YouTube. Yeah, you'd just laugh your ass off. You'd be like, come on, like, who's going to watch this? And, and now the story is because it's the same right history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes right guys like it doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes so now the story is consumer blockchain is huge web3 is going to be big nfts are the future we're all laughing at nfts oh yeah this is so stupid right whereas there's a lot of people who have become billionaires off of this industry who are doing really well because they understand the truth that nobody else is seeing right so yeah you're absolutely right and that's why most people lose in entrepreneurship <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think another reason that probably some uh, entrepreneurs may not um, find themselves su successful is, as one of the quotes from the book says, if you cannot fail, you cannot learn. So this idea of being able to take big risks, just like you mentioned about Elon, about it's either this works or we're bankrupt, you know, so taking the risk, being willing to fail, um, and being willing to learn and pivot and iterate, you know, with Airbnb as an example as well, they started out with just rent a air mattress, and they loved those interactions they had with those first people who stayed over. But if they had been really rigid and been like, no, Airbnb is not about renting out a whole house, it's just about, you know, renting a single room. So you have these interactions and sort of forcing everybody to fit into their preconceived notion about what they think that people want, uh, they would have never gotten to where they are today. Like, I love Airbnb. I use it all the time. But if my only option was to only rent a room and not the whole house, I would never use it because I am that person who will either A, assume I'll be murdered by somebody or B, just like I have kids that are loud and annoying and I'm not going to subject anyone else to them. So, you know, I need the whole house. I'm not doing the whole single room thing. But I mean, I just point that out because like you said, if you've got the rigid ideas, if you are so gung-ho about this is the only way, then, um, you know, you won't, you won't learn. You can't, if you, and like the book says, if you cannot fail, you cannot learn. So you've got to be willing to take those risks, do some failures, learn from them and pivot and iterate. Absolutely. Great. At one point that I'll drive that you said there is not people don't know this about Airbnb. BNBs used to stand for bed and breakfast, right? right like right. the founders were so obsessed about no, 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 you can't stay at an Airbnb. You have to, unless you want breakfast. Mm -hmm. and, and then you kind of think about it and you're like, isn't that a really stupid thought? Because right. some people don't even eat breakfast like yeah. me. So, mm -hmm. so even the smartest cats in the game, like, you know, like Brian and Nathan, and they, they had to be willing to change their idea to scale. Mm -hmm. Same thing with Uber. 
right? Travis Kalanick and Garrett Kemp, when they started Uber, they thought it was just going to be a, a black car service that was super high luxury. That's how it started with a bunch of these drivers. And they literally bought out the cars at the beginning. And it, look how it evolved over time. So we need to be willing to pivot and evolve to get to the truth. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Any other sort of examples, more, to, more extreme examples you can think of, of pivots? I mean, I think Nokia was once a, a fish processing company or <laughs> back in the day and you know a few decades later they're making mobile phones um i mean um you know is is something like that even realistic these days or once you start in one sector are you sort of tied to it or you know you just go out of business or you know what's your take on the development of companies over time as it were it's this is this is a challenging one, Tom. I'll tell you why, based on every everything. Glad, luckily, I know a lot about tech outside of the book, so I can comment on some of these things. Is you know, it was fascinating you two about startups. Is even if we say something as a principle, there's always somebody who can say no, I did it, and I didn't follow any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. A good example is Parker Conrad, the CEO of Rippling, right? He used to be the CEO of Zenefits. And he, when he built Rippling, he didn't talk to one customer. He just built it and it just worked. But we, I will add the reason Parker was successful is because he knew that customer inside and out because of his time at Zenefits. And when he ran Zenefits, he did a lot of the iteration cycles, right? Mm -hmm. so, so I think the key is there's definitely different examples. And you asked for an extreme. I'll give you the extreme most one that I know, Slack. Mm -hmm. A lot of people didn't know that Slack before was a video game. Okay, it was actually a video game. So Ben yeah, Horowitz, yes, yeah, who was the head of Andreessen Horowitz, one of the top leading venture capital firms in the Valley, he funded Stuart Butterfield as the founder of Slack. That was initially a video game, and the video game was not working. They had raised millions of dollars. They were going to go to zero, and Stuart was like, guys, this is not working. I don't want to waste my investors' money. Let's just quit. So he quit, like literally, he quit the startup. And then, and then Ben looked at him and a couple of members that invested in him and said, you know, we really believe in you. You know, start, try and find something that you feel we can build. So he looked at his video game. He went back to his engineering team and he realized, okay, what's something that we can salvage here? Is there anything we can build a product around? And one of the engineers said, actually a team of them said, what about the messaging system? So the video game had this really nice and sophisticated messaging system. And that made them think about how can we iterate on that messaging system? And that was the initial MVP for Slack. So you literally went from a video game, you two, to the, one of the top messaging systems on the planet that sold to Salesforce. So what's the message here? I think the message here is there's a couple of types of entrepreneurs that are successful and there's no one fit size all. There's the accidental entrepreneur who uh, finds a problem and then builds a business around it. I'm actually an example of that. I, would, I never intended to be a business owner. It just so happened that I was really good at communication coaching. There was a product that people were willing to pay for. I was able to scale a business. So I'm like category one. Stripe's founders are a good example of that. Airbnb's founders, they just happened to stumble upon the problem. They were kind of walking and they just fell over. And then they're like, oh, there's a problem here. We should solve it. The second type of founder is the builder. So the builder is the person who's just always going to be an entrepreneur. Even if they fail every day for the rest of their life, they'll just never hold a job. They just love building. Some examples include Slack's founders, right? So Stuart's a good example of this. He's just building. You know what? Even if this video game doesn't work, I'm just going to go to the next thing. Twitch's founders are a good example of this. Michael Siebel, Justin Kahn, Emmett, 
when they started Twitch, it was literally a dude called Justin. It was called Justin.tv and he had he had a camera on his head. Okay, that's how it started. Okay, they were part of the first ever Y Combinator patch. So these guys are builders. They didn't care about the result. They just like to build. And then those are really the two types that I've seen really in the Valley become really successful. And it's hard to say, is there really a pattern here? I think, I think at the end of the day, the person who's type number one is easier to predict, but there's a lot of exception cases for type number two that just builds something that accidentally turns into something else. Mm. That also reminds me of uh, the TikTok story where they had tried so hard to make it an educational platform. Like they started with this concept of people want short form learning. And then next thing you know, it's dance videos, you know, and cats and whatever else. Oh, yes. And you remind me as well, Corinne, of the third type that I, that I just remembered mm. is the founder who had the right idea at the wrong time. Mm. So a good example is Instacart. Mm. Uh, so Instacart's founders, Apurva, Meta, uh, he had the right idea at the right time. So when, when that was, that actually was done before and failed. There's a bunch of graveyard startups around Instagram. For those who don't know, Instacart is like a grocery delivery service. You can order groceries off an app or a mobile phone. And in the late 90s, during the dot-com bubble, uh, boom and bust, Webvan was actually the older version of Instacart. And they failed because mobile wasn't first. Nobody was willing to buy groceries. People were barely willing to buy books on the internet. That's how Jeff won. Mm. Jeff Bezos from Amazon. But then 20 years later, the idea worked. So the third type of entrepreneur is someone who takes a previously held idea that existed before, but is able to make it work in today's era because the timing for the technology finally makes sense. Netflix is another example of that, where 20 years ago wouldn't have worked, but because of the increase of broadband speed, it, he was able to make it work. Yeah, that sounds a bit more like the sort of more traditional definition of entrepreneur, which is someone who just takes resources from one area where they're low output and moves resources to an area where, where you get more out of it. Um, so yeah, I think this is, uh, Lean Startup is a great book of, I don't know when it came out, a few years back now in the 2000s, but um, the, all, the other, all the other literature on entrepreneurship, I find pretty fascinating. Um, you talked about the um, being very problem focused that the good entrepreneurs do that and i guess the, the flip side is that um uh the good entrepreneur or company capitalizes on an unexpected success so they've already got a business and something happens some line of the business or whatever explodes and does very well but many companies are sort of so narrow-minded they think no that's not what we do um we, we they, they almost try to like shut it down um, so again, I guess this comes back to the to the issue of psychology, um, that the that the good entrepreneur is someone who is pretty open minded compared to the average person. Hundred percent. And the only the only piece I would add on top of that, Tom, wonderful insight, is they're open minded and they're self aware. So they're self-aware to understand themselves at a level that most people don't understand themselves. That means strengths and weaknesses. Let's use me as an example because I know myself best. I'm, I'm definitely a type one entrepreneur. I'm the type of person who's really focused, who's very problem focused, but, and there's a big but, if I never had the idea for MasterTalk, I would be still in corporate. Okay, I know that very well. 
Like that's just the type of person that I am. But that self-awareness really helps us build the best possible business. Whereas there's other people who look at their open-mindedness and their self-awareness and go, you know what, based on where the payments industry is going, I think X, Y, and Z will happen. And there's actually a great quote here that uh, Patrick Collison talks about. And I think it summarizes so well, the best entrepreneurs in the world or the best thought leaders. And the quote is this, the best founders listen to everyone and ignore everyone all at the same time. (laughs) So what does that mean? That means that they listen to everyone's perspectives. Oh, what can I learn from the Book Insights podcast? Okay, what can I learn from A? What can I learn from B around Master Talk? And then the founder makes the best decisions for the business moving forward. So, so focusing on one thing isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like Starbucks did a great job with that with coffee. That's their focus. Sure, they might be selling some some sandwiches and stuff, but we all go there for the coffee. But there's other founders like Amazon, as an example, Jeff Bezos, who's a lot more innovation focused, where he's more like, no, I'm actually really good at multiple verticals. And when AWS was starting Amazon Web Services, he was like, yep, that's an opportunity. Let's jump on it. And that's the type of entrepreneur he is. So I think it's a mix about understand, having that open-mindedness to listen to everyone, but then having the self-awareness as an, as an operator of a business to go, should I pursue this? Or should I just go all in on my one thing? And that's the challenge about entrepreneurship. You got to know yourself well, and you got to know how to play chess, not checkers. Yeah, right. <laughs> and have a lot of that's self-belief, great. I guess, to get through the hard times, totally. um, which is another whole uh, mental skill set. Mm. Um, so, uh, Brendan, what we do every episode is we give the book a rating out of five and, um, and say why. Uh, Corinne, would you like to start? Sure. So I'm going to give this book four out of five bookmarks. Um, I think this is an excellent book for any entrepreneur, really, uh, or even just like a project manager type person. I feel like this is a great one. So many lessons, so many easy things that you can apply immediately. Um, It gives really valuable knowledge about how to get a product and really a whole company off the ground. Um, I only remove a bookmark because I, I, I like to give five out of five for the books that I can just give anyone. I don't have to think very hard. I can just hand it to anybody. And I don't feel this is that book because you really have to be in a pretty niche um, industry or like, I think you have to be a certain type of person that's going to actually read this book, use it, find it valuable. Uh, But other than that, you know, I think it's great. That's the only reason I give it four is just because the specificity is awesome, but it does make it somewhat limiting of who you can give it to. So yeah. What do you think, Brendan? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great rating. You know, I was thinking around four as well. But for me, I would say the reason is to your point, there's a narrow focus there. But it's a great one on one. I think it's one of the best 101 books on how to actually change the world. You know, a lot of people say they want to change the world, but they don't actually understand the how behind that. And I think Eric really tackles that well, and in a very simplified format. So yeah, that's why I would give it a four as well. It's not for everybody, but for people who want to change the world, who are already operating a business, I feel Lean Startup is a good read. Mm, yeah, mm. absolutely. Or about to start a business. I guess that's a pretty good time to read it as well. Absolutely. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, Tom? I think it's um, it's easy to sort of read the biographies of great entrepreneurs and get very inspired uh, without really getting understanding mechanics of what's involved. So I would say read this book alongside of, you know, a biography of 
of Rockefeller or Jeff Bezos or, or Musk um, to sort of come down to earth a bit. Um, I, I think of this book alongside the E-Myth Revisited, which is about sort of a sort of 90s book about starting a small business. And that one was very like lots of interesting stories about people and stuff. This one's a bit more cut and dried. So I agree with you, Corinne, it's not for everyone. But anyone thinking of starting a business or in the midst of one, yeah, I, I think it's um, must reading. Yeah, and you're right. E-Myth is, is definitely related. And I love that book. Uh, we have an episode on that one. So if you're watching or listening and you've not checked out that episode on the E-Myth Revisited, definitely, if you liked this episode, you'll love that one as well. Mm-hmm. So looking at uh, the, where the book is now, where Eric Reese is now. So basically Reese's writing career um, started with his blog back in 2008, which was called The Lean Startup. And then after that, he published this methodology into uh, like from his blog into this book, The Lean Startup. And that was published in 2011. Since then, it's sold over a million copies. As Tom mentioned, it's kind of the Silicon Valley Bible. It's everybody's read it. If anybody, if you work in tech, you've read it, you've heard it. There's whole terminology that that this book sort of coined that are now best practices in any tech you know company or Silicon Valley especially. Um, so after the book's release, Eric Reese went on to speak at conferences and he serves in an advisory role to numerous corporations helping them to implement these strategies. Um, in 2015, he released the Leader's Guide, which is a curriculum for his consulting work. And then in October of 2017, he released a new book called The Startup Way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so Brendan, um, tell us a bit more about you know your work and and how people can find you online. Yeah, absolutely. Too, what a wonderful conversation! Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so two easy ways to keep in touch. The first one is the YouTube channel. Go to Master Talk in one word, and you'll have access to hundreds of free videos. And then the second one for those who are interested in coaching, you can go to RockstarCommunicator.com. We do a bunch of free trainings over Zoom where you can learn for free on how to communicate ideas. Awesome. Amazing. You, yeah. Brendan. Yeah. Really, really valuable. Appreciate you being yeah. here. Of course. Yes, thanks for having uh, me. I can't, uh, I can't wait to check out some of the YouTube videos. Um, <laughs> and um, yes, just also remind we've, we've got a 10 point uh, memo, um, which sort of covers the key points from the lean startup. And uh, Corinne will also be doing a, a memo um, based on the conversation that you've just listened to. That's right. So if you want to make sure you have these insights with you on the go, um, be sure to check out the memo about this episode. Um, and as always, every Wednesday, we'll, we'll be here chatting about a, a new book. So thank you again, Brendan. Hope you'll all check us out again for another episode. And you can also find us at Book Insights Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. And we have a new website. You can go to podcast.memo.com. We have this new Book Insights podcast homepage where you've got the archive of all of our episodes and info on them and info on how to connect with us. So. All right. Thanks so much and hope you'll tune in again.